0: Well, let's read on in Luke 1, shall we? If you have a Bible with you. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We've already read verses 26 to 38. Let's read on, starting in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. For he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Well, we're in a sermon series around Christmas time that we're calling Songs of Salvation. Where we're looking at songs in the Bible that arise from narrative portions or the storytelling parts of the bible we've looked at some old testament ones already and this week we come to one in the new testament time and again we're seeing that some sort of experience of salvation or rescue happens for god's people and they stop to sing how could they do otherwise it's what we were made to do God has made human beings to be a, a singing kind of people. There are some cultures that do it more than others. We may see a little less of it today in, in our land than generations before us, but we still generally sing. We, we sing at birthday parties when someone gets a cake put in front of them. We all sing even if, even if we start off key or, or really can't hold the key at all. I remember some years ago when Sarah and I were at a, a cold play concert here in Albuquerque. And, uh, and everyone sang. Chris Martin, you know, brought us to church. He would tell us to sing and we would sing with him. Uh, sing heartily, even sing, you know, passionately about what? Well, nothing in particular, you know, the color yellow or... The scientist, or clocks, or things like that—that's what Coldplay songs are about. But but people tend to sing and really sing uh, when they're experiencing some some form of joy uh, or some some trouble. My supervisor at Oxford, he, he told me that during World War II, the English would. Would sing together frequently and loudly to drown out the sounds of Nazi bombs. He said that's why, even decades later, the English sing more and better than Americans do. He was probably right. But even in our own country, how many of us remember after 9 11 when congressmen and women gathered on the steps of the Capitol? And heartily sang, God bless America. And we all wish we were there with them, singing with them. Many of us remember those first few pro games after 9-11. When the crowds there sang the national anthem a little louder than they usually do. We tend to sing in times of trouble and in times of great great joy. And what is true of humanity in general is especially true of Christians. God's people have always been a singing people. We've been saved to sing God's praises, according to 1 Peter 2. And so wherever you go and wherever you find Christians gathering, you find them singing. Churches and church gatherings may look a little different from place to place and from country to country and culture to culture, but they all share in common at least these two things. Christians gather around the Bible and they sing together. They gather around the Bible and they sing, and that's what we do this morning and every Sunday. We sing and we gather around the Bible We sing because we know trouble, and we have known rescue. And in Luke 1, the young Virgin Mary sings. At least we believe so. I know it doesn't explicitly say that she sang. Verse 46 says that she said. But what follows is poetry. And likely it was more than poetry. Because Mary follows the pattern and uses the language of redemption songs of old. Like Moses' song in Exodus 15. Like Deborah's song in Judges 5. And like Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. Now to better understand why Mary sang like she did and what she sang specifically, we have to back up and, and zoom out some. We have to understand the anticipation which precedes her song. We have to understand something of the announcement which fed into her song. And we have to understand something of the confirmation that fueled her song. And then we'll be able to more fully understand the, the praise that flowed from her mouth. So, so that's our outline. Four words. Anticipation. Anticipation. Announcement, Confirmation, and Praise, the primary point of the passage. Let's begin with the first, Anticipation. The story doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes somewhere in, in the midst of our Bibles, which means there's a whole lot of story that came before And the anticipation that feeds into Luke chapter 1 really goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. It's in Genesis 3 when after Adam and Eve sinned against God and and followed the serpent instead of God, it was then in verse 15 of Genesis 3 that God simultaneously cursed the serpent and gave hope to his people. God said to the serpent that the woman's offspring or or her seed would one day bruise the head of the serpent. And this sets the tone for the rest of the story. It sets the tone for the rest of the Bible. It sets the tone for the rest of humanity. If we're reading along in the Bible and we take Genesis 3.15 seriously... We should be looking for one to come who will be the serpent crusher, we could say. And sure enough, Adam and Eve start having children. Of course, it's not that first generation where the one to come, the serpent crusher, is found. But you read on. Eventually, you come to Genesis 12, where God promises to Abraham... That his seed, or offspring, will be great and will be the blessing to the nations. And those promises are renewed to, to Abraham and enlarged in chapter 15 and chapter 17. Again, we're looking for one to come. That drama is complexified in the fact that Abraham and his wife Sarah are of old age... And they don't even have one child, let alone many. It's then and only then in Sarah's late barren years that God provides a child for Abraham and Sarah. His name is Isaac. The next couple of generations, the same kind of things are happening again and again where barrenness, eventually by God's miraculous inner working, Gives way to birth. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, is also barren until the Lord opens up her womb and Jacob is born. And then Jacob's wife, Rachel, is barren until God opens her womb. And then from Jacob comes 12 sons in total, which later on will represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And of one of these 12 sons, Jacob foretold in Genesis 49, from Judah will come a lion-like ruler of the nations. One to come. You fast forward hundreds of years, maybe almost a millennia, and you come to 1 Samuel 2, when another woman, Hannah, is barren, until God gives her a son, Samuel. Now, none of these sons so far are the promised one, but the same kind of story keeps being told, where God steps in to bring life where there was no life. And one day God will bring forth the one. In Isaiah, some 700 years before Jesus was born, In Isaiah chapter 7, we read the prophecy, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Two chapters later, we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That's the promised one. That is the capital O, one to come. A virgin-born son who is God with us, wonderful counselor, son of David who reigns forever. Now other prophets speak of another one who was to come around the same time. There was one to come before the one to come, and he would lead the way. He would would clear the path. He would get the people ready. So it's no surprise then that Luke introduces us not to one son, but two sons and two miraculous births. Elizabeth is barren and in old age, but God provides a son. He will be the forerunner. He will be the one to prepare the way for the one. And Mary, her cousin, she isn't barren, but she is a virgin. And God provides a miraculous son, the son, Jesus. But before we land on that moment, before we even try to understand all that it means, and the angel will tell us, won't he? But let's stop short of Luke 1 for just a, one little moment more and, and appreciate the anticipation. It's a long time coming. There's a whole lot of Bible from Genesis 3.15 to Luke 1. Isaiah's prophecy, 700 years before the events of Luke 1. The Old Testament story ends even 400 years before the New Testament story begins. It's often called the 400 silent years because there were no prophets prophesying or speaking on behalf of God in those 400 years between Old Testament and New Testament. You can imagine how it would have felt. It would have felt like God had maybe given up. Like maybe his promises had fallen flat. Like maybe the glorious day that the prophets foresaw is really never coming. Or the one they predicted would fix all things would never show up. Of course, there were some who kept on believing and recounting and trusting in and looking for the promises of old to be fulfilled. But it wouldn't have been easy to keep believing. The anticipation had been swelling and swelling and swelling. The, the, the weight had been growing and growing and growing. And then there was an announcement. Secondly, announcement. Now there's one angelic announcement which precedes our passage. When Back in chapter 1, verse 12, an angel tells Zechariah, the husband of Elizabeth, that his wife is pregnant. We'll look at that next week. But the bigger announcement comes to Mary some six months later. And it's Gabriel himself, one of a few of the angels uh, where we get a name in the Bible. But here, Gabriel himself, a special angel, appears to Mary. And Luke gives us no record of what he looked like, but he must have been... Well, unusual, if not alarming, Mary, verse 29, was greatly troubled. And the angel said to her, let's read it again, verse 30, picking up in the middle of verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you'll call his name Jesus. He'll be great, and he'll be called the, the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. You see how all this leans on and hence fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. Jesus is the son of God, the son of Jacob, the son of David who will reign forever and ever. Just like Genesis 49 foretold, and just like 2 Samuel 7 talked about, if you want to read that later on, or like we read from Isaiah 9. Mary doesn't quite put all the pieces together at first. How could she? And the first thing she doesn't quite get is how this can be since she's a virgin, verse 34. She wonders, how can this be since I am a virgin? So if you struggle to believe in the virgin birth, at least be comforted with this, that Mary did at first as well. But if you stay there, you've missed the point of the passage. If you think, virgin birth, that's impossible. Well, that's exactly the point. It's impossible. It's impossible, except it's not impossible with God. God has once again, in the grand story of the Bible, done the impossible, the inconceivable, the unthinkable. And that's the angel's explanation to Mary's question, how can this be? It isn't really much of an explanation, at least not for a biologist or for an OBGYN. Verse 35 The angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. You see, if God is all-powerful, if God is the creator, if God is the life-giver, well, then a virgin birth is no problem for him whatsoever. If someone says, I I can't believe in a virgin birth, what they're really saying is, I can't believe in an all-powerful God. But the Bible says that God is all-powerful. He is the creator. He is the giver of life. And this God usually works in observable, predictable, what we call natural ways. And the study of those things is called science. But this God doesn't have to stick to his usual way of doing things, does he? And we call that miraculous. Besides, Jesus is no ordinary child, is he? He's the Son of God and he's God Himself. And so it makes perfect theological sense that He be born of a virgin since He is both God and man. We sing this time of year, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. It should be shocking to our natural sensibilities that Jesus would be born of a virgin, but we should believe it. We should believe it because the angel said so. We should believe it because God can do anything he wants. As the angel says, nothing is impossible with God. We should believe it because this was no ordinary moment and this was no ordinary man. And we should believe it because of what's happening at cousin Elizabeth's house. The angel tells Mary, verse 36 and 37, that her cousin Elizabeth is also pregnant. And being so late in life, and being famous, really, or infamous for being barren, Elizabeth's miraculous pregnancy and her six-month belly to show it, it will prove for Mary to be a sign. Mary already believes what the angel has told him uh, told her she says in verse 38 let it be according to your word uh, but there's further confirmation nonetheless so thirdly confirmation you see mary hurries to the hill country in judah to find her cousin elizabeth this was up to a 100 mile journey through some rough terrain and yet she hurries there might have been a three day journey for the young teenage woman and she enters the house of her cousin and notice how so much happens so quickly the baby within Elizabeth leaps at the sound of Mary's voice and somehow Elizabeth has has understood the whole thing The angel had had already told Zechariah, her husband, that, that their son would, it says in verse 17, notice that, their son would go before him, another him, someone else in the story. And it's according to verse 17, the Lord himself, that their son will precede and the reaction of the baby within Elizabeth reacting to the voice of Mary confirmed to Elizabeth that Mary was the one with him with the Lord she was bearing the one and Mary's oh, sorry Elizabeth's miraculous pregnancy plus her words to little cousin Mary mean that everything that the The angel Gabriel told Mary, it's true, it's happening. Let's read again verse 41 and following what Elizabeth says. She was filled with the Spirit, notice that, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Notice the the notes of joy. Notice Elizabeth's exclamation, a loud cry, a shout. Notice Elizabeth's humility here. Her focus is not on herself or her child. Despite the fact that her own pregnancy would have been a big deal for her, it would have been cause for great joy, it would have been a great relief. She says in verse 25 that her son will remove her reproach. It was widely thought, though not biblically so, but it was widely thought in Judaism of the time that a woman who was barren wasn't favored by God and was in some ways even bearing some kind of a curse all that's gone for Elizabeth but that's not what's on her mind and that's not what she says to Mary her attention and her focus was immediately on Mary and Mary's son not just because Elizabeth was humble but because she understood that her son would sort of be the robin to Mary's batman Okay? Elizabeth's son would be the robin to Mary's Batman. Elizabeth's son was special, but he wasn't the one. And Mary was bearing the one. And thus, Elizabeth blessed Mary. Twice she calls Mary blessed. Now, it's important for us to get right the ways in which Mary is rightly called blessed it would be wrong to essentially disagree with elizabeth here and think that mary isn't so blessed after all but it would also be wrong to ascribe blessedness to mary that the bible never ascribes to her so let me just notice this let me just note this for you for us and note that luke 1 does not say in fact there's no place in the bible that does say That Mary was sinless. It's just not here. It doesn't say that Mary remained a virgin for the rest of her life. It doesn't say in the Bible that Mary didn't die but was taken up to heaven. It doesn't say in the Bible that Mary should be prayed to. It doesn't say that that Mary was some sort of co-redeemer with her son Jesus nor does the Bible teach that we should make statues of Mary and keep them in our house so that we feel protected. Yes, Mary was indeed godly, and she rightly responded to the angel's announcement with with great, humble faith. But as we'll observe from her song in just a bit, she saw herself as among those who, who are needy who need mercy. She saw God as her Savior, which means she needed saving. She's rightly called blessed, yes, in part because of her godliness and her humble faith. But in larger part, she's blessed because of her unique, undeserved privilege to carry the Messiah in her womb. She is most blessed because she had the unique privilege of literally bringing Messiah to the world. She was the first to hear his name, Jesus, God saves. She was the first to hear that God was now at that moment bringing about his saving purposes and fulfilling his promises of old. In that sense, she is indeed most blessed of woman, of women. And her song has our attention today. So now, fourth, praise, praise. Mary's song of praise in verses 46 to 55, it's known as the Magnificat because that's the first word in the Latin translation, It's the word behind the English word magnifies in our English Bibles. Let me suggest four elements to Mary's magnification of God. First, notice exuberant praise. It's exuberant. My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. What does it mean to magnify God? Well, you might think in terms of a a magnifying glass that makes things appear bigger than they are. Or or like a a microscope brings things into our sight that we couldn't see without it. John Piper gives a, a helpful illustration about how we magnify God. He says we don't magnify God like a magnifying glass or like a microscope. We, mag- <clears throat> we magnify God rather like a telescope. A-, a telescope looks at stars that are far away and seem small but really they're big up front. And the telescope brings them closer to Reality in a microscope looks at organisms which are small not big and it brings them bigger which is further from reality helpfully so but but that's not the way it works with god he's like he's like the stars our magnification of god is something like telescopes on those stars bringing closer to reality, how big he is. So we don't make God big. We show him to be big, and we describe him to be big, and we celebrate his bigness, which magnifies him, bringing him closer to our reality and closer to our experience. She says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Notice the mingling of head head and heart, if we can speak in those terms. Sometimes the Bible speaks of the heart as not the organism for thinking or feeling. Sometimes the heart is the whole thing. Sometimes the mind is the the whole thing. But we do, in our culture today, speak in terms of head, intellectual things, and heart, emotional things. And Mary is exercising both, whatever you want to call them. She's thinking on God, and she's passionately responding to what she knows and thinks. She'll lean on the Bible for her language. She'll follow the model and borrow language from Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2, but not just Hannah's song. She uses language from all over the Bible. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, says, Almost every word here is a biblical quotation. So she's got Bible because she knows Bible. She has new news from an angel. She has the experience of confirmation through Elizabeth. And she bursts forth in magnification and joy about this God using the Bible's language. Notice under praise, this this is also personal praise. She begins, My soul, my spirit, and then moves on in verse 48 to say, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, referring to herself. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now Mary's situation was unique. She's the only person to have carried the Son of God incarnate in her womb. And her song reflects her own uniqueness. And yet, much of what Mary celebrates and sings about is actually common to every believer. Every Christian can say, He looked on me. I didn't deserve it. He gave me his look of grace and drew me in. Every Christian can say, The mighty God of old, The mighty God of now has done great things for me. Holy is his name. What God was doing with Mary, he was in a sense doing for the whole world. Not that everyone in the world bears the Son of God in a womb, but what he was doing with Mary has implications for the whole world. The salvation that Mary was beginning to understand specifically through the Son of God and the Son of David, this is a salvation for the whole world. And so there's a section here in her song that we might call pervasive praise. It may not be the best word. I can't think of a better one. Maybe expansive praise. It's just that it moves from Mary's personal experience to to the big picture. Notice verse 50. She talks about what is from generation to generation. Notice she has in mind all of humanity. She describes who God is and what he does. What does he do? Well, he saves and he judges. He divides humanity into two. He saves and he scatters. Notice how it just bounces between those two in verses 50 to 54. Verse 50, mercy. Verse 51, the second half, judgment. Verse 52, the first half, judgment. The second half, salvation. Verse 53, the first half, salvation. The second half, judgment. Verse 54, salvation and mercy. God saves and he scatters. Notice who he scatters. Or judges. He scatters the proud, verse 51. He scatters the the so-called powerful or the mighty, verse 52, and he will send away those with a plenty in verse 53. What the world says is, is it. You know, power, plenty, and reason to be proud. The world says this is where it is. And God will destroy it all. God will bring it to ruin. Those who have much will end up with nothing. Those who are proud will be proven to be nothing. Those who think themselves powerful will be brought low. God will scatter. This is the ministry of Jesus. This is what he came to do. He didn't just come to put little kids on his lap. And When he comes again, he won't come just to gather his people, but to judge the world. He will scatter. That's what's in Mary's womb. God's children instrument for judgment on the proud the powerful and those who trust and love their plenty but it doesn't have to be that way because he saves who does he save the humble verse 52 the hungry the hungry Verse 53, and indeed, later on in the story, Jesus will feed the hungry, those literally, physically hungry, but he'll also teach that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled. Mary doesn't know that, of course, but we know that. We know that his salvation is not just feeding the 5,000 or the 3,000 or you. His salvation is feeding the hungry who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who know they need it. That's why they're humble. He shows them mercy. Twice in our passage we find that word mercy. Verse 50, verse 54 He shows mercy. Not to everyone. Don't forget. He will scatter the proud and the powerful and those who trust their plenty. But he will save. He will show mercy on those who know they need a savior. Those who know they need mercy. I pray you know that today. I pray you don't go through another Christmas season without knowing that Jesus came to be the kind of righteousness that none of us have and to die for the sins that all of us have committed. He offers mercy to you today if you will humble yourself and come to him and confess that he is who he says he is. And you believe that he did what he said he would do. last part of this praise, we could call it biblical praise. Biblical praise. It's biblical in that it's Bible-saturated, as we've already said. But it's biblical praise in another sense, in that it focuses on the Bible's fulfillment of promises long ago. So notice how it ends. Mary sings, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers. To Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary was aware of those promises that we and through earlier on in anticipation of the events of Luke 1. Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, promises given to Abraham that in his seed one day would be a blessing to the nations. She saw it being fulfilled before her very eyes and in her very womb. No doubt she at some point realized Isaiah 7, a virgin shall bear a son. That's me. Surely she connected the dots from Isaiah 9 of the wonderful counselor the Son of God and Son of David who will reign forever and ever, connecting that with what the angel told her and pinning it to her praise forever, forever, and ever. Let's follow the lead of Elizabeth and Mary this Christmas. Mary and Elizabeth were unique, for sure. But not so unique that we can't follow their excellent example. Notice a bit of progression from Mary's question in verse 34. How can this be? To her trust, in verse 38, her faith. Expressed by Elizabeth, her cousin, in verse 45. The joy of John the Baptist in the womb leaping at the sound of Mary's voice. The praise, the loud, exultant cry of Elizabeth with her cousin Mary. Mary's joy and magnification of her God in song. This should be what we do and continue to do every Sunday, every single day. We respond to what God has done in history and for us. As we think about it, as we're moved by it, As we describe it back to Him, focused on Him, rooted in the Bible, drawing from the Bible, looking back, looking around, and looking ahead, and proclaiming to the world He saves. Be warned, He also scatters, but He saves. If you'll humble yourself and come to him. This praise between Mary and her cousin is praise that is shared. It's almost as if Elizabeth has her own little praise chorus to get things started. She shouts out a praise chorus of her own. And Mary responds with a hymn. Well, may we ponder what the Lord has done in fulfilling his promises specifically in his son, Jesus, and may we give hearty and happy thanks to him in praise with each other. Well, let me pray and then we'll sing some more. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for Elizabeth's praise chorus and Mary's great hymn of praise. Lord, we thank you that you lead us not only in what to believe and in what to put our trust in, namely Jesus and what we call the gospel, but you also lead us in how to praise you and how to respond to what you've done if we've come to believe it. So may we all say today, Lord, personally, experientially, because it's true that you have done great things for us. May it be so, Lord. Give us faith and joy as we sing, as we sing to you and with each other. And to stand to respond to respond together.